1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, and 1. Welcome to Soundboard, the Steinway & Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. I'm your producer and host, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at Steinway & Sons and for the online music magazine, listenmusicculture.com. My guest today is trumpeter Sean Jones, the band leader for Carnegie Hall's Jazz National Youth Orchestra, a.k.a. NYO Jazz. Jones is a former first trumpeter of the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra, and holds the Richard and Elizabeth Case Chair in Jazz Studies at the Peabody Conservatory of Johns Hopkins University. He spoke to me at Carnegie Hall. While recording this interview, we encountered some electronic interference, which I wasn't entirely able to eliminate in post. So I apologize to listeners for any reduction in audio quality of this episode. I hope you'll tough it out, because this conversation is, in my estimation, a good one, and an important one. In any case, you may read a transcript of this interview at steinway.com soundboard. Here's why I'm talking to you today. I went to the Carnegie Hall season announcement, and I love Carnegie Hall, but the season announcement is the season announcement, okay? Right. Yeah. I know what's going to happen. I know it's a Beethoven year. I bet Anne Sophie Mucha is going to be on the program somewhere. <laughs> I'm not expecting them to say... Ladies and gentlemen, this year's composer's chair is Chuck D. Okay. Yeah. Then, in a clip that they had done for uh, NYO Jazz, you said something to the effect of, jazz celebrates what is best in America, and it also reveals what America has tried to sweep under the rug. And that really knocked me out, because I know that's true. I know that's true, and I, and I knew it was true the more I thought about it. But to hear it really made me start thinking, because I think some of the received narrative about jazz right now is, well, jazz has led to hip-hop, and hip-hop is now the, uh, the prime musical expression for African Americans. and. The received narrative from hip-hop is, in the Bronx, these kids didn't have money in their schools for instruments. They made the turntable into an instrument, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But if we go back farther than that, that's true about jazz. That's absolutely true. And I wonder if we could just start with you unpacking that statement. Yeah. Well, there are so many layers there to this that it's impossible to unpack it all in a short period of time. But the one thing that I will say is that in the American condition, not just black people, but Americans in general, have all had to find ways to survive and create through survival, right? And what I mean by survival is, you know, we just look at the, the, the economic lenses that we deal with, people not having as much or just having enough to be able to survive, right? Well, survival isn't just about eating food. It isn't just about having water. It's about being able to express yourself as a human being. That's a part of our survival. And so when you don't have 
economic means to have an instrument to have access to arts programs, teachers, et cetera, et cetera. You take anything and you make it work. Well, what did black people do, you know, at the turn of the century, talking about the 1900s? They took old, you know, war instruments and the music that they heard, you know, which was predominantly, you know, like art music that they heard, predominantly marching band music, things like that. They flipped it, added different elements of time to it, start bending notes, start doing that. That was technology. Right. We look at technology in a, in a weird way, like it's like, OK, it's something that you plug into somewhere. No, technology is a new is an invention or, or a way to take something that exists and manipulate it so that something else forms out of it. OK, that's technology, technological advance. And so they took these coronets, these clarinets, these things, and they started to transform what was there into something new. Yes, hip-hop comes out of jazz, and hip-hop does that right now. Yes, but it's just an extension of what has been the African-American condition in this country from its inception. So this is a changing of musical language, and it reminds me what James Baldwin said, that English language changed for black folks because the language as it was could not possibly encapsulate the black experience. That's correct. That is correct. So do you you see a parallel there? There is a parallel, direct parallel, in that if you take, you know, a, 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 a march by Sousa, you know, any of them, any march. You know, you 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 just gestured the square, yeah, right? Four square, four square. It's not really square. It's just a thing. It's what it is. Okay. Now, what African Americans did was we took what what is innately inside of us, the rhythmic components playing off the beat, all of that bending and swooping, all the things that we brought over here, and we added that naturally to it. D d d d d d d d that's African, you know what I mean? How, but, but at the same time, it's human. The thing that I, I worry about in this country is that we divorce ourselves from one another. You know, like I'm looking at you across the table, right? You're clearly a white guy. And I'm clearly a black guy, but we just have experiences that have that have informed who we are based on where we come from, where they came from that raised us X, Y and Z. But it all comes back to the same stuff, man. You know, and that's important, too. If you were me, you'd be the same way. Exactly. That's that's empathy. That's empathy that jazz is bringing and that hopefully the arts are bringing. Right. And that's our purpose. Our purpose is to unlock the chains that the world has put themselves in. You know, economics, div- division, Hammurabi's code, all of these things that have, from, from, from those sources, attempted to divide us. You know, it's the artist's job to unlock the chains and say, we are the same. You know, 
And, and that's what jazz has been able to do in this country. Turn to hip hop, turn to rock and roll, turn to this, that and the other. You know, and at some point. It would be great if Americans said that we are Americans, we are this. We are informed by a multiplicity of nations, but we come from those places and became this one thing. And I suppose that within the next few decades, hopefully, we start to progress a little bit more and go in that direction. There's a lot of people that look like me in Europe, but when they walk, there's no bounce in their stone. There's white, a bounce. But when white Americans like myself <laughs> walk, there's more of a bounce. Oh, that's very true. I would like to think that that is informed by my proximity to jazz and to other influences from African-American culture. That's true. I think there's a line there between the bounce as I walk down the street and the bounce that's that's in that music that you were just that right. you were just singing that the African Americanification of Sousa earlier. Mm-hmm. You know, and the flip side of that is, I would like to think that extended forms and harmony, extended compositional techniques, and and things like that, being able to theorize those things and code them a certain way, you know, comes from you know the European experience. Absolutely. And I'm able to do that now because Europeans exist. Yes. <laughs> yes. And so one being better than the other or one being superior than the other, whereas black, white or white, black or, mm-hmm. you know, Asian, wh- whatever it is, none is superior. The thing is that we cannot truly exist and rise as, as a human species without one another. What did you learn working under Wynton Marsalis for those years? <laughs> the, the true definition of hard work. Um, I've never seen a human being work that hard in my life. Literally, 24 hours a day at times. I saw him write a mass. I think, I would, well, it was either the mass, the Abyssinian mass, or it was his um, swing symphony. I can't remember which one it was, but I'm pretty sure that it was the mass. He wrote that in six weeks, man. Six weeks. Just up all night, just going thing to thing, meeting to meeting, this, that, and the other. And he became the CEO of Jazz at Lincoln Center simply by reading about being a CEO. No one trained him. I was there. I saw it. His true genius, in my opinion, is his tenacity, his work ethic, in his vision. He's a wonderful artist, amazing artist, wonderful human being. But, to but call so him, are a lot of people. But right? so are a lot yeah. of people. Yeah. <laughs> but his genius is in his work ethic and his ability to create a wonderful platform for the art form, jazz. You know, some people disagree with how he feels about it. He disagrees with some things that he says, some things that, that he says I don't necessarily agree with. but. We're all different. And he's entitled to his aesthetic view of jazz. He totally is. And I appreciate my time with that band. I appreciate my time with him. He's like a big brother to me. And um, I'll just say that his true genius, in my opinion, is his work ethic. Now you're in a mentor role as band leader of NYO Jazz, which is the jazz 
National Youth Orchestra, a program put together by Carnegie Hall. Yeah. These are 16, 17, 18-year-old budding jazz players, and they come to you for some intense workshopping and shedding and, and touring. What do you try to pass on to them? First thing I'll say is it's daunting. Um, the older I get, the longer I'm in education, the more I realize that you can make or break a spirit with a sentence. One sentence. You're saying that they're in a fragile place. Yes. Mm-hmm. They're in a very fragile place. They're being fed information on a daily basis from their families, from teachers, from mentors, from people they care about, from social media. More information than when we were kids. Way more. It's crazy. And it's, and it's conflicting, you know? Mm-hmm. But the one thing that I try to do is just open their mind up for possibility. Anything is possible. Dream it, you can do it. Just put in the work. And so I realize at this age, <laughs> just turned 40 years old, it's not as old as some, but it definitely is not as young as some. I'm 42, so I'm, I'm with you. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> We're in <Yeah>. proximity. <laughs> so I just realized now that, man, you know, I've been given keys. I have keys. And when those students come through that, through that door and they're ready for rehearsal and they're looking at me with their eyes big, not knowing what to expect, first thing I do is get out those keys. And I walk over to them, man, and I unlock the gates. Unlock the chains. I free them. Okay, that's a beautiful metaphor, but how do you do that? You do that by, one, letting them know, one, it's okay to make mistakes. In fact, please do. But go after it, no matter what that is. Go after the lines on the music. Go after the phrasing. Chip a note. Miss a bar. Do all that, but do it with intention, and we'll correct the mistakes as we go along. Okay. Number two. Don't be afraid to come to me with your ideas. You are all geniuses, all of you. And I don't know everything. The, the greatest leaders know that they are typically <laughs> not the smartest person in the room. And it's their job to take all intellectual capacity in that environment and put it together and create a vision for it so that we can all go somewhere. Okay? One thing. Three, managing the dynamics in the room, personalities, things like that. That's important to do. But like I said, the biggest thing that I want to give them, though, is freedom to be. Freedom to express. Freedom to unlock their chains. And, and, And again, I do that simply by just accepting them as equals. You know, I'm not in a superior position. Being a leader doesn't mean that you're superior. It just means that you're the first person out the gate to, to, to yield the sword. <laughs> That's my job. We're all the same. I just have to be in the music that's coming before you have to be there. Okay. So that when you get there, I can show you what's up. You just got to be a day ahead. <laughs> yeah, that's all. That's leadership. <laughs> leadership is not a superior position. Right. It's a forward position. 
What has surprised me in my own, you know, limited roles in mentorship is whether it's with my daughter or with, you know, aspiring journalists is what I end up learning from them. So that's all. What have been some surprising takeaways for you or encounters that you've had when you're when you're teaching and you end up wow. learning? The most surprising moments are when I think I know something and a student lets me know that I have no idea what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah, well, you know, you have this chord here and you approach it this way. And then they say, nah, man, check this out. And it's like, what? And and I have a decision to make at that moment. Mm -hmm. Because what I know has worked for me. Right. You know, it's like, what are you talking about? I've been making this cake this way for 25 years. Yeah, get off my lawn. Yeah, get off my lawn. What are you talking about? (laughs) You're going to tell me that this new ingredient will make this cake better? Please. So at that moment, it's my job to yield and allow them to express themselves because ultimately they're teaching themselves when they teach me. They're reinforcing their own concept. So the more that they reinforce their concept, the better teachers they become. So I'm actually teaching them to be a better teacher. Right. And that's good confidence for a student when when you can pull that off. Right. Totally. But that's the hardest thing, man. It's like when you think you know something. And then there's all of a sudden a new way to learn it. Mm -hmm. It's like how many how many ways can you say, you know, like the chord A major seven sharp eleven? How many side, how many ways can you say the, the chord progression two five one? And they show you a new way to do it, and it's like, what? <laughs> but that's evolution. Mm-hmm. When you're traveling and you're, you're carrying jazz with you. <laughs> uh, have you had some some surprising reactions when you're overseas to your music that again g- gave you some insight? Initially, I had many surprising reactions regarding my music. Honestly, some of the most surprising reactions are, jo- are joyful reactions. Like, wow, I really love that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for those moments. Surprising to me because it's, you know, they're tunes. Yeah, it makes you feel good. But that exuberant? Really? That's surprising. Other surprising reactions are like, when someone will come up to me and say, <laughs> they'll undoubtedly say, like, why did you play this song this way? Defend, you know? your, defend your choice. Yeah, defend, defend your, your decision mm-hmm. for playing this sacred piece of music in a new way like this. Defend it. And my defense is, I'm giving it new life. Right. You know? What do you mean, new life? It's already alive. You know, straight no chaser is straight no chaser. Why would you destroy this like this? It's like, well, you know, straight no chaser decided to permeate my mind and present another scenario. And so I decided to give birth to that idea that straight no chaser gave me. And straight no chaser can sustain many different interpretations. Yeah, there's just 12 notes, man. 12 notes, it's like Quincy Jones says, 12 notes. 
Those 12 notes, once they come th- come out of your body and, and go on a page or go on a recording or something like that, they live inside of that space. But like any tree that's planted, you know, it starts off as a seed that then becomes a tree, which yield, yields more seeds that become other trees. It's ridiculous to think that all trees are supposed to be the same. You know? No. They're of that tree, same grouping, yeah, but it's not going to look the same because it's a new tree. talk about this exuberance and where that might come from. And this gets back to the beginning of our conversation, talking about what America celebrates and what they hide under the rug. Can we even quantify what it is about jazz in particular that touches so many people across the world in such a way? It's real. It's real. And it's birthed out of real emotion. Not saying that other musics aren't. But, you know, specifically art and musics come, come a lot of times from head spaces. You know, jazz typically isn't that. It's almost like an unpo- unapologetic pursuit of expression of things that we find absurd in our own lives. It's like, how dare I think this? Like, there's a tune, <laughs> there's an album called. Uh, that Duke Ellington did is a double-sided album, right? And it's sort of his take on masculine and feminine anatomy. And one side of it is warm valley, and the other side of it is the flaming sword. (laughs) I mean, that's, you know, absurd. It's very elegant the way that he does it. And when you listen to the, you know, one side and you listen to the other side, it is a true sonic depiction of those things, you know? And he unapologetically does that because that's who we are. We're human, you know, and jazz has always done that. And it's and it's been a relentless quest for the music to do that. But that's what American music does in general, man. It's like kind of like this raucous way of expressing the human condition through through manipulation of sound in its extremes, you know. And we do it very well. We do it. In small form, small songs, you know, little tunes that we riff off of, you know, the American popular song. Those songs are short, man. A three-minute single. Yeah, they're short. But some jazz tracks are long. Some jazz tracks are long because of the improvisation. Okay. But at at, at its core, like you said, 12 notes. At its core is 12 notes. Simple. Simple stuff. And the one thing I've learned about teaching is that I can't teach. 
I suck. Okay. Every year, you know, I've been teaching in a collegiate setting for the past 15 years. I was crazy, man. For some reason, I thought to myself, like, okay, all of my peers, they're going on the road. They're doing their thing. I'm going to go in a classroom, man. Someone from our generation needs to be in there early. So I decided to do it early. And I thought I could teach in the beginning because all I did was imitate my other teachers. Mm. You know, like I had a great teacher. His name is Tony Leonardo. He was a killer teacher, man. Passionate. But he was also like whiplash. You know, he would curse you out mm. at the drop of a dime, go off. And so I tried to do some of that. No, you guys suck. Blah, 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 blah. Not realizing that everyone can't handle that. Mm-hmm. You know, that's early on. And then as years go on, I learned that one, that's not me. That's not my character. <laughs> Two, like I said, it's not going to work for everyone. And so I adjusted, right? And then I saw that I was able to reach more people with other, other things. And then different classrooms are different classrooms. It's like a, a subject inside of a physical space with a, with a certain audience inside of it, week after week, day after day in some cases, means something different than another subject when you see the person, the, the class once a week, and it's in a different type part of campus with different lighting, different time of day, and all of that. You need to approach that with a different spirit. You know? So this sounds like this was sort of a, a Zen journey of authenticity for you. Yes, big time. I can't be someone else. I know nothing. Yes. Let's go and and explore and let's explore it together. I've I've realized that true teaching, man, is like it's like sort of like a dual thing. It's apprenticeship slash mentorship and group learning. Like we're literally, I go into class a lot of times and just we know nothing. Let's just talk. Here's the lesson. <clears throat> I'm not that good at this. What do you think? What do you think? And we go down the rabbit hole together. And right. undoubtedly, every single time our humanity meets, we meet in the middle and we figure it out. That's it's another too- jazz metaphor right there. We go down the rabbit hole together. Yeah. Our humanity meets. We figure it out. That's it. It's within an ensemble. That's audience and, and performers. That's exactly right. Mm. Okay, well, let's leave it there because I don't think I don't think we can get more profound than that. <laughs> cool, man. This is great, great. Yeah.
You've been listening to Soundboard, the Steinway and Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. We heard clips from Giant Steps by John Coltrane and Run With Jones by Miguel Zanon, performed by NYO Jazz and Sean Jones. Our intro and outro music is Philip Glass's Mad Rush, performed on a Steinway Model M by me, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at listenmusicculture.com. Questions for the podcast can be sent to info at steinway.com with the subject heading Soundboard. Thank you for listening.